Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is modernizing supply chains with my friend Brandon Daniels. Brandon is the CEO of a company called Exiger, a global risk and regulatory intelligence company that helps organizations build resilience and achieve sustainable growth. Supply chains are global, and in case you guys didn't notice, a lot of crazy things go on in our world, which is why companies turn to Brandon and the Exiger team. They will keep you and your supply chains out of trouble. So please check out our conversation. So how's it going, Brandon? Hey, how are you, Joe? Good to see you. I'm excited to talk to you about this. So, Brandon, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Absolutely. So I'm Brandon Daniels. I'm the CEO of Exiger. Exiger is a supply chain and third-party risk management software company that works across the federal government, critical infrastructure, the most important sectors and companies of the world to help them modernize and de-risk their supply chains. I'm calling from Richmond, Virginia, based out of Virginia, and I my main office is Tyson's. Where's your main office? In Tyson's Corner, Virginia. It's it's in McLean, right outside of DC. Very nice, very nice. Brandon, one more time. What do you, what problem do you guys solve for these guys? Yeah, so what we've seen over the last five years is a rapid evolution in the supply chain space to move away from just price and performance and to understand and account for the risk that's in any supply chain. So we see reputational risks like counterfeiting risk or risks of forced labor or risks of environmental disasters. We see financial health risks. We've seen a huge volume of companies that have gone bankrupt due to the inflationary issues and the interest rate hikes that we've seen over the last year. And we've seen things like national security issues in our uh, supply chain. We saw that in the COVID-19 response effort, and we've seen that in chips that have been produced by foreign actors that are then being utilized to take down things like the Colonial Pipeline. So we've seen supply chains become more and more operationally significant in every aspect of our lives. And so what we're helping companies to do, and then also uh, federal governments across the globe, but mostly the US, UK, Australia, what we're helping them to do is to proactively identify those supply chain risks, right? So when you have a cyber health issue, or when you have a reputational risk issue, or when you have a, a potential disruption because a supplier might be going out of business, we identify those things proactively and we help our customers to ensure that those things do not disrupt their supply chains. It's, it's estimated that there was about a trillion dollars of disruption that was affected in the supply chains after the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're trying to get people back to the point where they can rely on their supply chains, where they have re resilience in their supply chains, where they have redundancy in their supply chains. So we're helping to modernize and to make our supply chains more adaptable so that people can get back to doing business as normal. Yep. Yeah. And we, before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about this is at one time in the olden days, before we went global, 
we had supply chains that were relatively local. And you didn't really have to worry that if you source some parts in Indiana or Wisconsin or somewhere else in the States, that they would be doing something illegal. You didn't have to worry about forced labor or slavery, well, not in this century anyway. And we really didn't even think about it. And by the way, even if that was a problem, let's just say they found some crazy part of Indiana that was doing something really illegal to make your parts, it wasn't visible. So we were not only were we not going to find out, no one else was going to find out. In today's world, everybody finds out everything. <laughs> everything becomes visible. Everybody's walking around with them with a mobile phone and half of them think they're journalists. We're going to post that up on the internet and boom, your reputation and your business is potentially lost. And when we went global, we took all sorts of risk to save money that we didn't think about. We were like, hey, what do I care? We're getting it a lot cheaper from Mexico or from China. Hopefully they're doing the right things, but if not, who's to know? The part quality is right. The cost is right. What do I care how they made it? That's right. And and if it was done in Indiana and that ended up affecting your supply chain, ended up affecting your product delivery, ended up affecting your brand, Joe, right? You'd have recourse. We have many instances of companies in China stealing intellectual property uh, from the United States. And the issue is, what do you do? You bring an international trade case. Good luck getting uh, a venue in China to prosecute that intellectual property theft matter, right? It's just not even a, it's not even within the realm of realities. There's visibility. There's the fact that you can control and manage it, but then there's the ability to get legal liability or legal coverage in, the, in that case. And as the supply chains have uh, spread out across the globe, as there's been diaspora of our serial production lines, we have lost control and we have lost legal recourse. Yep. And I think we're seeing nearshoring and reshoring of supply chains. That's not going to happen overnight. I tell people this all the time. I went to school at night. So I was going to school all through the 80s and 90s. And I got my undergrad, my master's at night school. And during that time, I would always hear, we're going global. This is going to be a global economy. And after a while, you just, you heard it all the time. I remember I took two semesters of Japanese because I was positive I was going to Japan because everything's going global. And I went to Japan, but not very much. I went to China a lot. I never learned that language. But what was interesting is it took at least a decade longer, if not 15 years longer before there was any real globalization. And I feel like the reshoring and nearshoring is going to take just as long. If you have a factory in China and you say, hey, we're going to move that because of many issues, China is not the same partner it once was. We're going to move that to Vietnam, or we're going to move it to Malaysia, or we're going to move it to India or Mexico or Idaho. Um, we're going to try and do, yeah, we're going to try and do it right this time. This time to, I think this go around, we're going to be a lot more thoughtful. We didn't know what we didn't know 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when we started moving our supply chains offshore. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is absolutely right is as people are looking at the the potential alternatives to the current dependence we have on very fragile and brittle supply chains that extend almost exclusively into China many times. But as they extend into China, they also uh, extend into the Congo, where 
the vast majority of our cobalt comes from, or they extend into Peru where we have copper mines, right? They extend into places where we have even further issues controlling the manner in which our goods are manufactured. People are realizing that there is a cost premium. There is economic coercion going on when you've got an economic system which is opaque or you've got slave labor that is being utilized, you're actually not dealing with the real cost of goods. And you have to put a premium on top of that and say, look, we're either going to work with those providers to reach an ethical state of play or we're going to reshore, right? And what we're seeing is if you look at the 1860s, right? And you say, what happened to modernize America, right? You had us going from whale blubber to kerosene to, to electricity, right? All within the span of 15 years, the world changed. And, and if you looked at the papers in 1850s, you would have thought it was doomsday. Whale blubber was spiking in terms of price. Nobody knew what the alternative was going to be. But then there was a ton of inf- innovation that flooded the market to make it so that the world was a better and safer place to do business. If you think about the 1860s from a population control perspective, the advent of the skyscraper and large-scale apartment buildings and things like that. After that first skyscraper went went up in New York, within six years, almost every skyscraper that was there for the next hundred was up, right? We are fast innovators once innovation is demanded and necessary. What is it? The father of innovation is necessity or something like that, right? That, that's exactly. where we are right now, where people are realizing that this dependence has to happen. And companies like us are innovating on ways in which you can scale your due diligence of companies, scale your landscape view of companies, scale your sourcing process. In the COVID-19 response effort, Joe, we helped the government due diligence on 11,000 companies in 30 days. That used to take you months or years to do, to build up a supply chain like that. First of all, there's innovation, but then there's also innovation in production itself, Right. We're seeing, for instance, solar modules become less dependent on silver, taking down the cost and taking down the lack of control we have into silver mining. You're seeing people innovate in ways in which we can produce silicon carbide chips instead of just silicon chips, right? So that we can de-risk out of Jinjiang and the Holshine silicon plant, which at one point manufactured 45% of the silicon used in our electronics today. So you're seeing innovative ways in which uh, serial production is occurring. The question is, how do we get it right the next time? It's moving due diligence and risk management and operational risk analysis to the left of boom. Before I buy, or maybe even before I start looking at a market, let me apply to that market a set of risk criteria. I'm only going to look at vendors that have financial health stability of X or I'm only going to look at subcontractors or providers that expose their underlying ownership details, or I'm only going to look at vendors that have certifications around forced labor, you know, attestations. Like we're going to do this right this time. Uh, If you can get to the left of boom and establish, you know, a landscape of companies, a landscape of providers that you're able to engage with across jurisdictions. Move some of that to South Korea. Move some of that to Japan. Move some of that to Germany. Move some of that to Portugal. Move some of that to the the places that have now committed to ethical sourcing. And we'll start to innovate as well in those same jurisdictions, right? If there's one thing I know, it's human individual ingenuity, human ingenuity and individual curiosity can lead to way more efficiencies than just the brute force of forced labor or poor regulatory 
enforcement in environmental standards or something. Yep. Yep. It's well time. And by the way, I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So I told a friend this the other day. I was working in the 80s. <laughs> yes, before most of you were born, probably. I was working in the 80s as an engineer. And I always remember this. The engine, we were a supplier to Ford Motor Company. And I remember the engineer who I talked to every day. He said, Joe, I just need you to make a few changes. He told me what they were. I made a few changes to the design. And, and then I got a call from purchasing, which I didn't talk to them a lot. And they called and they said, Joe, what are you doing? I go, I don't know. What are you doing? He goes, I got this change notice from you. And he, he goes, you didn't ask me for this. I go, I never asked. Hugh asked me to do it. And he said, Hugh doesn't have a budget. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, purchasing buys this stuff now. And I was like, so I immediately called Hugh. I was like, hey, I'm just going to call from purchasing. He goes, yeah, it's true. And I guess my point is my long story here is we used to have manufacturing was in charge and then engineering was in charge and then they would fight over for a long time. And then at some point they said, okay, when we are picking suppliers, we're going to have purchasing and procurement involved. But they usually did what they were told. And then at some point they said, nope, there's going to be a process where we have everybody who needs to be involved in this purchasing decision is going to be involved. Purchasing will lead that team. And you got, there was sometimes a, a half dozen, there's probably six, seven different departments who had input on that. And they, there was never purchasing overruled engineering or manufacturing. It was, they came to a consensus and made that decision together. And that was that happened in the 90s and the 2000s. I think we're starting to see that everywhere now. Automotive is different in that they've got enormous volumes, enormous scale. They sell millions of things that cost 40 grand a year or $40,000. And I think that's why they were there first, but I think you're going to see every organization start behaving that way because you can't afford the mistakes that we've made in the past uh, where maybe engineering made that call and they didn't know that this was made in a forced labor situation or manufacturing makes a decision and they picked a supplier that's halfway going out of business, right? Well, the thing is, it's, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. I, I remember just going back to the early nineties, I remember I was watching the big new layer report and it was my, my mother and I, we were watching it and we were talking about the sort of rise of globalization, right? And it was even a debate as to whether or not globalization was going to happen in the late 90s or late 80s, early 90s, right? It was, it was still a concept, right? And just like deglobalization is a concept now, that was what we people were talking about in the 80s. And I remember just having an argument as to the, the foundations of globalization. And the key aspect to this, the key driver was that technology was going to allow the conversation, allow the individual interactions to become communications. So you no longer had, had to actually individually meet. You no longer had to inter individually interact. 
in order for transactions and commerce to happen. You now we're going to rely on these global methodologies of communication, which were technology derived, that were going to allow for us to do just-in-time delivery, right? Which was going to revolutionize the world. And that happened. However, we didn't realize that when we put everything on a flat plane, because that's what we thought we were doing, this is free and fair global markets. We thought when you put everything on a flat plane, everything's going to distribute and roll to where it's going to be best specialized. The thing that we didn't realize is that China took its part of the fabric and pulled it all the way down, right? So everything just rolled into this deep hole of Chinese dependence and on foreign dependence for manufacturing, for raw material sourcing. And what they did was they used their almost un unchecked ability to deregulate, to have certain areas that had basically regulatory blackouts to make it so that they could have people working in any conditions at any cost that they chose, right? And Xinjiang, which is now one of the areas that the United States has blocked or banned imports from, Xinjiang, which was a coal-rich and water-rich central part of Chinese manufacturing became this hub for significant production of goods, right? 45% of the world's silicon-derived electronics emanated from Hoshine Silicon out of Xinjiang. And it's because they were coal-rich and there were, there were no shackles placed on them at all in terms of how they were producing that coal, how they were burning that coal, how that was pushing carbon into the environment. And then they had this population called the Uyghurs that they could subjugate, right? And that they could underpay and that they could devalue. And so what it did was it said, oh, okay, yeah, everybody's on this level playing field, but there's this one country that's basically making it seem like everything's being manufactured cheaper. It's just they're not living to the global standards. They're not living up to the invisible hand that we have put on the other westernized countries. And so then... What happened when we thought we were doing globalization, we were just doing deep China dependence, right? And so, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I heard somebody said on my podcast, said that 50% of the supply chain functions on the planet happen in China. Half. It's stunning. And you're right. This, their standards are different. And by the way, I'll throw this out there also. I don't use TikTok and because I already waste enough time on my current social media. I'm afraid, but I do know this. My 17-year-old TikTok though. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, my kids are always sending me stuff. I go, why aren't you? I go, I'm not getting, I have Instagram. It's, I waste enough time on there. But I guess what we do know is I've worked in China a lot and I do know that we're used to and we act as if when we're in China that they are working the way we are. Except they are, their 51% of the company is owned by their government. And their government is increasingly saying, share that information with us. I remember the guys I worked with on a regular basis, they'd say, hey, Joe, looking forward to the meeting next week. And we're working on Jeeps. One last request, if it's no big deal, bring over the CAD files for the uh, new minivan. I go, what? The new minivan, just bring the CAD files. Like, why would I do that? I, and I would laugh. And they, and they would say, these are guys I would go out and have a beer with who would have, and I've always felt like they weren't asking because they knew it was right. 
they were asking because they were forced into this. And I was like, oh yeah, that, yeah, I'll bring those. Of course I'll bring them. Anything else you want me to bring all the, want me to bring the Chrysler's new product development plan? It was so stupid, but that's, somebody would ask them, not, I should say ask, tell them, get the minivan, get the new minivan, because they're going to build it without consideration for their partner who they looked at as we're here just basically to abuse you. And again, it's not the Chinese people. And again, you look how successful Chinese people are worldwide. China, Chinese people know how to be successful. Their current government holds them back. Anyway, let's switch gears for a sec. Tell me a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started Exeger. Yeah, yes. Everything that I've done for the rest of my life up until being the CEO of, an egg, of Exeger certainly helps me to be the CEO of Exeger, but all of them looked at individually are so disparate and wide ranging, right? Like I, I talk with my son, for instance, I've got three kids. I live in Richmond, Virginia, but I've got a 17 year old, a nine year old and a seven year old. So I've got a big distance. And my youngest, who is my baby girl, she's my daughter. I love her from 17 to seven. I had had a lot more gray hair and a lot more, a lot less sleep. But I was talking with my 17 year old and he was talking about the things that he might want to do when he grows up. And I said, Damon, focus on being adaptable, focus on having core skills like mathematical skills, like interpersonal skills, focus on the things that are intrinsically or inherently valuable. Don't focus on the career because the career will come by virtue of what you learn and what you experience and what becomes valuable. Don't focus on the what, focus on the how, because the how is always going to get you there. So I was born in Boston. I was born in Beth Israel Hospital, right in downtown Boston. My family, actually, if you go back a couple of generations, so my father's family is all from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and we're like third generation Ohioans. Uh, They were all car mechanics. So it's like my cousin Vinny. My cousins are car mechanics. My uncle's a car mechanic. My grandfather's a car mechanic. My dad was a car mechanic, right? So it's generations of car mechanics from Ohio. And then my mother was actually someone who left India, Pakistan when uh, partition happened. And they left because my grandfather had converted to Christianity. He was teaching comparative religion at Lahore University, which is in now in Pakistan. And at one time, imagine, maybe. Yeah. yeah, at the time, comparative religion was not a popular subject in Lahore University in 1945. So he decided to leave because he didn't think it was safe. So they left and they went to Cambridge University. They went to Madison, Wisconsin, and eventually ended up at Boston. So my dad had come to Boston for school. My mother had lived in Boston for the vast majority of her life. My, my uh, grandfather was a, a, a professor at Boston University for 37 years. And my, my family was in Boston before I was born for a while. And we stayed there up until I went to school in D.C. But to go to school in D.C. Yeah. So I went to GW, which originally I went to only- at George Washington University? George Washington. Yeah. I went there originally because my brother went there <laughs> and uh, he and I are very close and he loved it. So I thought, oh, I'm going to love it. But eventually it became clear that DC was the place that, you know, I was going to develop a career. So my brother was a lawyer. Might as well uh, stay where the money's at. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. It's recession. You don't know if you paid attention. There used to be 
where you look at the Forbes 400, there's always, they were always in New York. And then we saw about 20 years ago, uh, still plenty of money in New York. It didn't all leave. A ton of money out West, especially in Silicon Valley, Portland, and, and Seattle. And then in the last 10 years or so, it's Washington, D.C. <laughs> there is no money like Washington, D.C. And I can't figure it out. I don't know where they got all that money. That was the thing for me is the, the dot-com bubble burst. And D.C. had, it It weathered that recession. Really? Right? I Imagine mean, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> our our economy continued to, to thrive because most of what we were doing was regulatory focus, right? So I was working for major corporations on the WorldCom and AT&T merger. I was working on the Microsoft antitrust matters, right? So this was a great place for me to be because it gave me really interesting opportunity to get involved in the risk and compliance space early in my career. And it actually jettisoned me into the technology space in risk and compliance when I got a job at LexisNexis about six years or so later. I was working at LexisNexis in the early 2000s, and I was in the legal and then also heavily regulated corporate, corporate side of the LexisNexis business. Books had just started to be modernized into online research. There was the advent of electronic evidence in litigation matters, right? Like the Zubalink just case just happened. And so forensic investigations had started to move to technology. And so my career started to move in that same direction. So I had the opportunity to work on a huge volume of cases for healthcare providers as the uh, healthcare space was starting to go through its major overhaul of the anti-kickback statute all the key TAM actions that were filed against medical device companies, all of the uh, issues related to off-label marketing that were happening across the medical device space, the major product liability matters uh, that, were, that were there. So I got into the risk compliance space originally in LexisNexis and working with customers of LexisNexis to basically handle a huge shift and overhaul in the healthcare space with regard to compliance standards and the way in which they interacted with doctors. It was the age of the of killing the, the key doctor thought leaders that had been subject to huge grants, huge humanitarian awards, and then also tons of vacations, tons of kickbacks related to drugs and major pharmaceuticals and medical devices, right? So I was there for that entire overhaul. Then I got hired by a company called CPA Global, which was the best move in my career. Everyone said, why are you leaving LexisNexis to go work at this relatively unknown, still startup-y company? And what CPA Global was doing was they were changing the way that intellectual property was being managed across the globe. They had been originally established in 1969 as a, a company that would basically be a third-party for renewing your patents in hard-to-reach jurisdictions. They then became one of the world's largest patent renewing firms in the world, but it was all manual. And they wanted to automate the entire IP management process from sourcing the IP to protecting the IP to renewing the IP. And so between 2007 and 2011, I went on this journey with CPA Global where 
we had basically revolutionized the way that you manage IP. We built some of the first artificial intelligence solutions to support patent research and prior art research. We built a uh, patent and legal outsourcing and risk and compliance capability that allowed companies to outsource the management and protection of their intellectual property. We were we overhauled Microsoft's IP department and basically wow. ran that entire process. We grew from 550 to 330 million. And I ended up as a part of the management team selling that company for 1.1 billion. I then went to a company called Clutch Group and built the largest or one of the largest IP or excuse me, a compliance and risk analytics firms for the financial services space and got hired by a lot of the banks after the financial crisis <laughs> to basically be a skilled person and help them overhaul their compliance programs using technology and expertise in risk and compliance matters. And then I came to Exeger as originally a part of the HSBC monitorship, which was the largest monitorship in history and was awarded to my then boss, Mike Tricaski, who was the former CEO of Kroll, former CEO of Marshall McLennan, former CEO of USIS. So pretty experienced guy, had 25 years of CEO experience. He hired uh, me to help him in the compliance technology area in the HSBC monitorship. And we saw this huge hole as we were doing our monitorship work and our work for heavily regulated corporates and uh, financial services firms where they just had a gap in how to manage export control matters. Everything was just being stuck in EAR 999 and being unclassified so that people didn't have to deal with ITAR regulations and, and export control classification. We saw huge gaps in sanctions. And we realized that basically the problem was data. It was just data. There was too much data and no way to sort through it, no way to manage it. And so we built our platforms, a platform called DDIQ and a few others, to basically try to help companies to wrangle this issue of data and supply chains. And we went along that journey through 2019, building platforms for the federal government, for heavily regulated corporates, and for financial services institutions. And then we got a contract with one of the major DOD agencies, the largest security agency in the world, 14,000 person. DOD agency. And uh, Department that of contract, Defense, they right? said, we don't e only need to understand individual companies and the risks in them, but we need to understand the entire supply chain beneath them. And between 2019 and 2020, we built the solution to provide supply chain visibility and supply chain and supplier risk management and got the chance to deploy that in the COVID-19 response effort, which was the best battle test that we ever could have imagined for scale supply chain redesign. It was incredible. And we were able to help the federal government purchase $6 billion of products and avoid $500 million of fraud, waste, and abuse. So we had our opportunity to participate in one of the most significant moments in our history. That's fantastic. It's an interesting thing. As you were talking about all this, it occurred to me, you mentioned data. I think of what's happened with technology over the last, just my lifetime, when I, I had, and this is going to sound very old fashioned to say, I had a PC and then I had a, P, a number of PCs before the internet. <laughs> and I remember I would travel, if I was traveling to see you for work, I'd bring a disc and I'd show up and I'd plug it in. We didn't have email to send, but we would bring a disc and, or a floppy, whatever you want to call them. 
And we, it was a big step up from paper, but, and then we started being able to store stuff electronically, but it wasn't always available. And I always say that what we have now with, now we talk about AI now, AI needs an enormous amount of data. It also needs enormous computing power and it needs algorithms. We can figure the algorithms out. We've had data for a long time in cabinets, in in folders, actual cabinets, not virtual. And so we always had information. And I think over the last 10 years or so, it feels like more and more of this information is being brought together with the computing power, which isn't a problem anymore. And we can build those algorithms. And all of a sudden, the data, which was just, hey, here's... (laughs) Here you go, Brandon, analyze this 50,000 pages of data. You're like, I got nothing. Good luck. (laughs) But now we're able to say we took all those pages and now we're able to push out some analytics. Now we're able to push out some insights that say, do this now. And I think it's, it's absolutely what we need because these supply chains, I know what I will say I'm an automotive guy. I think in terms from order to cash, that's if you're a lean guy, look at the world, order to cash. It could be 16 weeks, 18 weeks in automotive, 20 weeks, whatever it is. But those supply chains have all these, all these stops, all this information. And uh, some of them are critical to health and safety. Some are critical to our ESG mission. If we have one, uh, a lot are regulatory and compliance. A lot have to do with our data security. We have, if you look at that order to cash, that 18 weeks, all the things that can go wrong in there. We used to be just get me my parts. Now now you're like, I have a partner. That's right. I have a partner that could be breaking the law in my name because I'm paying them. They could be breaking the law. They could be doing very unethical things that I would hate. Me and my business would hate. They could be endangering national security. They could be taking information. They could be hacking into my systems. That I think when I was young, younger, I remember somebody tampered with Tylenol. They went into the medicine and they did something. It was a local thing. Wasn't nothing Tylenol did cause that. Now, if you go to open up your medicine like a Tylenol, now there's that foil seal, right? We didn't used to have all that. We have that now because somebody tampered. I don't. I think we're still in the infancy of our data being tampered with, and we're still letting it happen. Right now, when, when somebody says TikTok is st- stealing your data, people go, that's cool, but I get to watch these um, people fall off roofs and these kids dance. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> it's, it, it. It is something that can potentially ruin your business. Tylenol took a massive hit. Not because they did something wrong, because some psycho decided to tamper with their product. So we have huge problems right now with this. We're, we have, I would say, enormous exposure across our supply chains. You're 100% you're 100% right. If you look at just the problems that you've seen in cocoa extraction and farming, where these iconic brands making chocolate, kids around the world love are at the same time exploiting child labor to source that chocolate for you. That's a game changer. That's a game ender. A couple of brands that have invested poorly or 
have partnered with the wrong supplier and that supplier is doing things that are unquestionably wrong and they end up bearing the consequences of it. And we talked earlier, a lot of countries don't have the legal framework to allow you to get recourse in, in those scenarios. And so that's why we're trying to move the analysis of this data, right? Because you're right. There's a huge amount of data that we create as we get to the product delivery to cash, right? There, there are the suppliers that are, there's the suppliers that are literally part of the logistics. There are indicators of where those products came from, what those products are made of. There's the, the technical data package, that CAD file that illuminates what are the special processes, what are the QA processes that have to be implemented. And in many cases, there are only two or three suppliers in the world that can do some of that work, right? And so there's a huge amount of data that allows us to get insight uh, into our supply chains. It's just now that artificial intelligence has gotten sophisticated enough to help us organize that data. And I think that's where AI is really good. I, if you use those LMs. Wait, what's, that? what's an LLM? Uh, a large language model, like one of those AI models like ChatGPT that people can ask questions of. Eventually, you reach a point where you say, oh, wait, I have to give it too many prompts to get to the right answer. Or that thing that it gave me was just clearly and absurdly wrong. Or I asked it an actuarial question and I got something incorrect. AI is really good at helping you to organize, triage, and prioritize things, which is what we need to do in supply chains, right? I need to figure out how to buy down risk, not eliminate risk. Eliminating risk is a fool's errand. If you're eliminating risk, you're not making any money. But mitigating risk, buying down risk, triaging risk, now that's possible. And so we, at the very beginning of our conversation, we said globalization was allowed. It was first enabled by the technology that we had developed to allow us to communicate globally. The fact is that on the back end, after we've used it for this purpose of shrinking down through lean methods, through Sync Sigma methods, the logistics of supply, we now can reverse engineer it. The problem and the solution are the same. They're both data, right? It's just in one case, I've just let it go. I've let it grow like a weed. In the other case, I've got to triage it down to what I need to make better decisions. And that's where our development of technology has been really focused. It's helping to get people to the insight because data alone is just a problem. But insight allows me to make better decisions, allows me to act in a way where I'm going to be able to be more effective. And so that's what we're helping our, our customers to do through the technology is get to insight faster so they can make those modifications and changes appropriately. The other thing, Joe, is when we actually focus our investment. So 50% of a product has nothing to do with the, the labor, the logistics, the, the assembly of a product. 50% of a product is the raw materials that go into it. And a huge uh, issue is that you have not optimized your raw materials buying. You haven't optimized your purchasing of titanium, purchasing of carbon plate steel, purchasing of these metals or these underlying uh, technologies that sit below your purchasing power. And if you actually get insight into those things, that you can actually create what are called an embedded spend programs or direct buy programs. And those can lower your cost of materials by eliminating not the profits of your vendors along the way, right? Because you want to have a strong supplier base, but 
eliminating the wholesale to retail aspects of that raw materials purchasing and of those commodity products purchasing. And we've had customers that have saved literally hundreds of millions of dollars by getting that supply chain visibility. But at the same time that you're able to save that money by better purchasing programs, you're also able to deliver, like you said, better compliance standards, better regulatory standards, and you're able to start to live that reputational brand that you want to have, right? It is not good for your brand to have counterfeit knockoffs of what you do roaming around the world and basically giving, a pe- giving people the, an impression of your brand that it's of poor quality. That's brand and reputational damage to the tune of trillions of dollars. This isn't just, this isn't just compliance because compliance for compliance sake is not always the right goal, but it's compliance and return on investment married together, which is what supply chain visibility and tracing help you to get get to. I think also we have consumers now that are increasingly interested in the supply chain. When I was young, I did not know what a supply chain was because no one used the term. No one used that till the 90s, I think. Not alone. Not alone. And I remember now my daughter, the one I'm purchasing, I guess I should have seen it coming. But I remember being at Meyer, which is like Walmart, but here in the Midwest. And we are at Meyer, and she, we had picked out some blueberries. And I remember she took her mobile phone, and this was in high school, took her mobile phone and was trying to scan the, the code on the blueberries. I go, what are you trying to do there? She goes, I want to scan this. I go, for what? She goes, I want to see where this was grown and what, when it was picked. And I said, that is, that's to check out. She goes, is there another scan that I can do? I go, no. She goes, there should be. And I was like, yeah, she's right. We're going to ask for that before long as consumers is I want to know that this came. And by the way, we have, you've heard like the good housekeeping seal of approval. We have, I think it's United Labs, UL, I I forget whatever that stands for, but it's basically proof that this has gone through the right tests, the right everything. They basically assess products and then you buy it because it's got that good housekeeping seal of approval. We're going to see somebody create that seal. Maybe it's you guys, but it says, don't worry when you buy, when you see this. And by the way, I, I would love to say the government will do that but they are for sale. They are for sale. That is the problem. And I don't, I, I think anybody who works for the government would say, yeah, that is a problem. Uh, a business that takes on that responsibility says, no, we are not for sale. We can't be because our whole business is that people it's trust us. That. Yeah, that objectivity. That's what our federal government customers tell us. So Joe, we're, we're deployed in 50 federal agencies. Our risk scoring technology across financial health, Cyber risk, operational risk, foreign ownership control and influence, you know, ESG risk, product risk. That score has been deployed in 50 federal agencies. And the, the thing that was repeated back to me by one of our customers is, you're not selling technology, Brandon. You're selling trust. And so now, all I is how much people trust us. That's it. Yeah. And I will throw this out there. This is not, this is the beginning, not the end. We're going to continue seeing this. And you mentioned ESG. I always try and avoid politics on my podcast because I don't like it for one, but also people don't listen to my podcast, but you've heard a lot of people attack ESG because 
Uh, some people say it politicizes things. And so we will see changes to that and they will call it something different. And But if you're working for a company and they say, hey, here's a standard that we have that's related to this, you're going to have to meet it. And there's a new one every day. I Over the weekend, I heard somebody say, Garm. I was like, Garm? What is Garm? And it was something related to responsibility in media. So it was like, I forget what it stood for now. I did know. But it, I was like, oh my God, there's a new acronym pops up every day. And again, it is one of those things that we're going to have to concern ourselves with and we're have to get, get, get very good at because this closes companies. And by the way, I just had the guys from OneRail on my podcast. Great company. They do Final Mile. And they're SOC 2 compliant. And why are they SOC 2 compliant? Because they realize that they're working with the, you know, large Fortune 500 companies that say, you better be SOC 2 compliant. And you, all you need is for it to happen one time where you say, hey, it was just one time that we compromised a customer's um, data. And so, yeah, Fortune 500 company got hacked. No big deal. We won't do it again. No, you, that sinks your business. You might not have a second chance. That's right. That's right. You're a hundred percent. Anyway, so I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Green Screens. That's greenscreens.ai. Green Screens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using green screens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy-side and sell-side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out green screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, before we hit record, I asked you what you guys did and you gave me three things and I, hopefully you remember what those three things are. And let's wrap this up by talking about those three things that you guys do for your customers. First off, who are your customers again? One more time, the sweet spot for Exeger. So first, we work with heavily regulated corporations. So that's in critical infrastructure. So big energy companies big telecommunications companies, big information technology companies, like the biggest cloud providers in the world, because now Medical. they're a part of our critical infrastructure. If you don't think so, think about the last time you hosted something directly. Healthcare, the defense industrial base, so the largest defense contractors in the world use Exeter, and then advanced manufacturing. So those critical, heavily regulated areas, you talked about automotive customers or customers, right? And then also the federal government. We have Department of Defense, DHS, DOE, all of them use our software to manage their supply chains and to manage their supplier supply chains, right? And to get insight into where there are cracks and crevices and issues in our markets and in our ability to deliver. And we do three things for them, right? We do supplier visibility and due diligence along the risk factors that I mentioned, right? Everything from financial health to cyber to foreign ownership, control and influence. And that, that's a national security issue if you think about it, but we do everything from uh, helping them to understand those risks at a supplier level 
to also getting visibility into those suppliers. So where are their facilities? Where are their production centers? How do they actually manufacture a product? Do they have the technical capacity and capability? We also then look at supply chains, right? So we help people to get supplier level open source views of the supply chain and risk assess them. And then finally, the third thing that we do is we help customers to orchestrate their supply chain across multiple levels or multiple tiers of uh, their supply chain, but on a very specific product level. So you can literally plug into our software, your aircraft, and break it down into all of the pieces and parts that are in it. And then you can literally ascribe a vendor to that part of the supply chain, whether it's, it it could be all the way down to boring a specific uh, part of the plate on the outside of an aircraft, right? That vendor is a part of that 3D universe of of that product. So it's like that electronic bill of material kind of thing. It's an e-bomb, right? So we do e-bombs, we do manufacturing bill of materials, but then also we do S-bombs. So we actually break down software into the supply chains that they are today. And we help our customers to roll that all up and get a risk assessment on it and to make sure it's stable, to make sure it's functioning, and to continuously make sure that they've got the right price. So they're managing cost. They've got the right resilience. They've got redundancy. They know how their suppliers are managing and functioning. And they've got compliance. They know that people aren't using forced labor in their supply chains. or they know that there isn't poor software quality or cyber hygiene. Like our goal is to give the chief procurement officer, the chief supply chain officer back the keys to the kingdom and say, hey, we're going to help you to quickly and rapidly and proactively mitigate risk so you can focus on price and performance again, because that's their sweet spot, right? And so we're giving them risk packaged and digestible and simplified in one platform uh, that's supporting their day-to-day use. So that's that's what we do. Yeah. during During COVID, a lot of people talked about the digital twin and and I only have heard one company, supposedly Apple has done something with a digital twin, but what you're describing, I'm assuming all this could, if it doesn't already, could do that digital twin analysis. Is Are you guys doing some of that yet? It basically is a digital twin, but what we do is we realize that your serial production line is not the same across all your products. See, digital twins often rely on data on top of your ERP, but your ERP is what has happened. I'm trying to help you get to what will happen. So I want to know when that titanium shipment doesn't hit your supplier and it's going to disrupt you 120 days from now. And so we're a predictive digital twin around risk and operational risk inside of your supply chain. And I think one of the things right now, if I was in charge of a supply chain and I didn't have your tool, which God, I can't imagine doing that. But if I was there, I would want to say, what are all the risks? I wouldn't say, what if we have another pandemic? But I would say, what countries are the highest risk for supply chain problems? By the way, I forgot what university does that, but supposedly there's university. I want to see University of Tennessee. I'm supposed to talk to them soon. Created a list of the countries that are the high risk, low risk for So if you said, oh my God, I got three of these countries that I work with that are on the list, I didn't realize they didn't have that risk when I got there. Um, Good to know that kind of thing. But I feel like we don't even talk this way. No one talked about risks. No one talked about risk like we do now 10, 15 years ago. 
That's right. That's right. We risk score every country along so many metrics, right? Economic freedom index, forced labor index, regulatory framework index, AML and money laundering indexes, right? Like we have to take all these indices into account because countries and commerce are complicated. And your relationship to China, if you're in Australia versus Vietnam, is dramatically different. Dramatically different, right? And it is a complex web and our technology tries to simplify that, bring all of our decades and hundreds of years of experience at Exeter in risk and compliance and in supply chain risk management and, and boil that down into something that's easy to, to follow. And I know there's a lot of logistics people listen to podcast. And if you think, oh, well, this doesn't include me, it does include you because you're part of the supply chain. So eventually somebody's going to ask you, are, are you making sure that you're treating your carriers if you're a broker? properly are you is your data managed properly is there a whole bunch of gaps if there's gaps there you're going to talk you're going to talk to brandon or one of his fellas <laughs> that's right that's right see you get a billion dollars worth of goods seized by cbp and that logistics or freight forwarders on the line believe me yep anyway let's let's wrap this bad boy up I've gone way over my time with you. I apologize. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, put a link to your website and any other links that you and your marketing team give me. And uh, what conferences will we see you guys at? We, uh, we're at all the defense conferences. So INSA, NDIA, those big ones. But we're always at the supply chain conferences as well. So American Supply Chain Summit, Gartner Supply Chain Summit, Gartner uh, Symposium, both here in North America and in uh, Europe. Those are our big ones. How about uh, Manifest? You get to Manifest next year? I have not yet signed up for Manifest, but we will uh, we'll certainly take a look at it. That sounds like a good, good plan. I really love Manifest. I was there last year. And the year before, I didn't go. It was the first year. And when I would, when I always ask, people go, I'm going to Manifest. I'm going to Manifest. And then I was like, I interviewed the Pam and Courtney from over there, the president, vice president. And... Then I went last year and I was blown away. It's, first off, it's huge. It's almost 3,000 people. And they got everything under the sun. And they got a ton of shippers. There'll be a lot more shippers there. So when I say shippers, you might go, what do you mean shippers? It's supply chain companies. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know exactly. I, in fact, I'm a the World Economic Forum Supply Chain and Transport Governors Group. And oh, so, so you're Illuminati then. <laughs> I couldn't be anything further from Illuminati. <laughs> I don't know. As soon as you say World Economic Forum, I'm like worried now. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I, if that's if there's an Illuminati, they haven't invited me. <laughs> it's that meeting. It's that meeting where everyone starts putting robes on, and they go, "Oh, Brandon, now uh, we'll catch up with you later." That's like, right. Wait. That's right. It's like, oh, he's from Boston. Keep his mouth shut. <laughs> I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Brandon. People who are killing it in the space. Who else should I interview? Who do you recommend? One of the people, the one of the people that I think is just a great person to talk to about this paradigm shift from supply chain risk to supply chain resilience is Ellen Lord. Uh, she was the undersecretary uh, for acquisition and, and sustainment um, in the Defense Department as the COVID-19 response effort got underway as the pandemic started. And she basically had to shift the paradigm from supply chain as an industry problem into supply chain as a national concern. And she did a fabulous job of it. I would, I would suggest speaking with her. 
Yeah, and but uh, thank you. And I definitely would love to talk to her. And I will say this. I think all of us had more when the COVID was going on. Didn't you have a sense like the government has certain strategic reserves? And one of the things I think they're probably rethinking this already is we sent everything overseas. So when somebody said we need PPE, you're like, where do we get PPE at? If we don't make any, we don't make it here. And by the way, speaking of not wanting to be political, I heard somebody complaining, I think it was to, about Kid Rock. And they're like, oh, you talk about America, Kid Rock, and blah, blah, blah. But all of your stuff is made in China. And he says, yeah, that's right. He goes, I wanted T-shirts from the U.S. I think they started a company. He goes, you can't get that stuff here. I heard Jocko Willick. He just spoke in Ann Arbor by my house. And he's, I think, starting, I think it's a, a whole bunch of um, clothing companies here. And you start to realize how during the pandemic, you say, yeah, we need some PPE. It's in China and we can't get ships over unloaded at the port. And so I know we probably air freighted stuff, but you start realizing that we outsource stuff that was probably strategic in nature. And I'm just mentioning PPE. I suspect the government right now, they're very good at reacting. <laughs> saying we should look at this and say, is there a better way to do this for the next pandemic? So that's what they're planning. That's right. That's right. Anyway, Brandon, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and I love what you guys are doing. It's a funny thing because it seemed not so long ago, if you were to tell me this, you'd be like, yawn, who cares? That's not important. It's critically important. And when you talk about the companies that are heavily regulated, so all you logistics people are saying, this doesn't impact me. If you work for a heavily regulated industry, and virtually all of us do, automotive is very, healthcare, automotive, anything food related, these companies have, are being regulated. And not so long ago, we had the Food Safety Modernization Act come through. And I remember I did a ton of training on that. And I'll never forget this. There was like 50, 50 trucking companies, 50 people in this room at training. And I remember somebody said, since when do we answer to the FDA? I was like, oh, as soon as the Food Safety Modernization Act came out. And, and I remember somebody says, that's BS. I'm not answering to them. I was like, you are answering to them. I don't care. That's not my problem. But, but the like reality- that's, That's just right. the reality. You can say you don't want to and you feel like you're all already over, overly regulated, but this is the world we live in. That's right. That's right. It's, that's why focusing on ways in which we can simplify the problem, yes. we can help people regain control and not be buried in alerts and nonsense and noise because of this. The more we can get people back to innovative ways to focus on better serial production better logistics, better shipment management, better structural ways to improve the way that we deliver goods, the better off we're going to be, right? These risk management pieces, our chief supply chain officers, our logistics professionals should skate on top of technology that's helped them to sort out some of these tougher risk problems. And that's what we're trying to do. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brandon, for taking the time. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Neil. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. 
You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.